All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. I'm off-site. I'm recording a future episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, so I'm not connecting with my pal, Chris Newmarker, today. We will have him back next week's episode. Today, though, I'm going to run two interviews I did with a couple of great companies that are really furthering the heart health space. First, I spoke with Campbell Rogers. He's the Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at HeartFlow. HeartFlow, of course, has a non-invasive test that allows physicians to understand the impact of how blood vessels are narrowed and the impact of blockages. So I'll talk with Campbell Rogers about that. And then later on, I'll play an interview I did with Dr. Jim Min, who's the founder and CEO of Clearly. Clearly recently closed on a $200 million plus round of venture capital. We talked a bit about that, but we talked more about Clearly's AI-enabled technology, how it identifies and treats cardiovascular disease. These are two really innovative companies that are furthering the ability of doctors to not only treat the impacts of, of heart disease, but also prevent the damage before it's done. So uh, two very important companies, happy to bring you their stories. We'll play one interview after the other. Before we get into those interviews, I want to remind you that Device Talks West is happening. That's on October 19th and 20th. Go to devicetalks.com, check out the agenda check out the speakers. We're going to talk about a lot of the issues that are important to you, including AI. So if you really want an understanding of where we're headed with the medtech industry, I wrote a piece recently calling it sort of the world's fair of medtech. It's kind of looking at the future of medtech. Go to devicetalks.com. Check out the agenda for Device Talks West. Again, it's happening on October 19th and 20th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Also, we'll have a Device Talks Tuesday for you coming up this Tuesday. We'll have uh, Stefan Hull of Hull & Associates talking about digital health reimbursement. Are we at a turning point? This has been a, a very popular event. A lot of folks have signed up already. Make sure you're one of them. While you're on devicetalks.com, you can register for that. Please watch it live. would love to have you as part of the conversation, but you can also watch it on demand at your convenience. It's free either way, so just sign up. We'll talk next week with Chris Newmarker about our big 100 list, which just came out. Keep your eyes peeled for that. But we'll learn more about that when I reconnect with my old pal, Chris Newmarker, in next week's episode. Now, without any further delay, let's hear from Campbell Rogers, Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of HeartFlow. Well, Campbell Rogers, welcome to the podcast. Good. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So before we talk about uh, about HeartFlow and an interesting aspect about uh, helping hospitals with their supply chain, I'd love to learn a little bit about your career path that took you there. You're executive vice president and chief medical officer at the moment. But uh, what was your first sort of step into uh, into medtech? Because you were a practicing physician before that, correct? Yes, that's correct. I spent uh, many years uh, as an interventional cardiologist at the Brigham uh, here in Boston, actually, and oh. uh, in the cath lab and doing research and so forth and uh, taking care of patients. And then uh, about 15, 16 years ago, I moved to work for Cordis within the Johnson & Johnson family of companies and was the chief scientific officer there for about six years and then moved to HeartFlow about just over 10 years ago. It's been just over 10 years at HeartFlow, which has been wonderful. Great. So just take me to that moment where you said, I want to join Cordis. I want to go and work for industry. What was that decision like uh, and why did you make that move? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it was... Um, an interesting decision tree to go through. It sure. was uh, 
a point in time where a lot of the a lot of the focus in the international cardiology world and in the research I was doing in the clinical care was related to drug eluting stents and to coronary devices. And it's a fascinating area scientifically. It's fascinating clinically. And you know, Cordis at the time was leading the way with drug eluting stents and. Uh, the opportunity was really focused on research and being able to have a broader footprint and, you know, in many ways impacting a the potential to impact millions and millions of patients through developing tools that help doctors. So that was the real appeal, the ability to have that broad impact on patients. Now, that's great. And how about the move to, uh, to HeartFlow? Obviously, a smaller company, different sort of uh, work experience, different involvement. What, what brought you to, to a smaller startup? Yeah, at HeartFlow, you know, it was interesting. The initial impressions from when I first got to know HeartFlow a little bit, were that this was something which was going to be a real boon for uh, people in my area of medicine, which was interventional cardiology. Uh, you know, the ability to define who really needs the high intensity, high acuity therapeutics that interventional cardiology and cardiac surgery offer and do that in a more precise way uh, was really cool and really interesting. The technology at the time, you know, it was years and years ago, was really in its infancy, but it's incredibly powerful and it was an exciting group. The leadership of the company at the time was clearly committed to extensive clinical investigation, which is an area of great passion for me. Uh, so it was just a great opportunity with a good, great group of people. Great. And just take a moment, if you would, tell our listeners about, uh, about HeartFlow. Sure. So HeartFlow sits at the interface between technology and medicine. And the core value proposition is as follows, that Despite the incredible prevalence of coronary artery disease as the number one killer and incredible driver of you know, patient symptoms, patient loss of life, et cetera, the diagnostic tools for defining coronary disease are relatively crude. And for decades, physicians have relied on stress testing, uh, whether it's on a treadmill and every, this are, these are common to lay people, right? Stress testing, get on a treadmill or have a nuclear imaging test done or have an echocardiogram done during stress and all those things. And it turns out those tools are just fundamentally flawed. And hmm. the ability to define both who does have and who does not have coronary disease is really limited for those tools. And over the last many years, the data has become more and more strong that those tools really are not as helpful as had once been thought for helping manage patients. You know, And so where we sit is at the really at the cusp of a new almost a revolution in this field, which is not using stress testing and instead using coronary CT angiography, which is a non-invasive way of looking actually at the coronary arteries. And remember that stress tests all use an indirect measure. They look at something about the muscle of the heart, whether it's electrical system or how it takes up nuclear tracers or how parts of the wall may move on an echo or whatever. It's indirectly saying, well, is the blood flow compromised. And what coronary CTA allows is a partial answer to that much more directly, which is, okay, are there narrowings in the arteries? Mm -hmm. Are the pipes themselves, which is where the disease is, you see the disease. So coronary CTA has really taken off. It's been elevated in guidelines to a kind of a premier position above stress testing. And where we sit then is where heart flow sits is you have a coronary CTA and that CTA shows some narrowings. The next question is, do those narrowings actually matter to that patient at that point in time? So we are able to use computational fluid dynamics, take the images already gathered in a CT scan, 
And without requiring any more radiation or drugs or a visit to the hospital or whatever for the patient, we're able to provide the physician just from the CT images, okay, here's information about the flow and pressure throughout the coronary tree in a way that has high utility and is valuable, including in the recent ACC guidelines, you know, highlighted as valuable for guiding decision-making and management planning in patients who have coronary CTAs that show disease. So that's where our core focus has been, is the adding the physiology to what coronary CTA shows. That's been very, very effective. We have just really a lot of data demonstrating to every stakeholder how this is helpful. We have physicians, patients, payers, hospitals, et cetera. And we're now expanding that. You know, We're living in a world where a CTA is at the center of coronary diagnosis going forward. I mean, that's clearly here to stay. That's going to be the case for years slash decades to come. And we are now expanding you know, with our, our ability to look at coronary CTA and derive information from it, expanding our offerings to include not just the physiology, but also, for example, you know, the coronaries have are narrowed with atherosclerotic plaque. And both plaques all differ from one from another. And the amount of plaque a patient has differs from the next patient. And those metrics are turning out to be, we believe, will be quite important for physicians as well. So you can say, okay, you had a patient who had a CTA and they have a narrowing. Okay, first of all, is it low? Is it slowing the blood flow? That's the physiology piece. And second of all, what's it made of? Is it high risk? Is it something that's gonna pose a risk to this patient? And we have using our artificial intelligence enabled platforms, now really cool tools that are, we believe in their final stage of passage through the FDA, that will allow us to characterize that and say to physicians, you know, Mr. Mr. Smith has the following plaque composition and plaque amounts where Mrs. Jones has a very different pattern, which may pose a differential level of risk. Interesting. So coronary CTA scans, they are now the gold standard. They've replaced the stress test? Yeah, I think, well, look, not yet because the infrastructure in the cardiology world for stress testing is, is pretty embedded, mm. but there is absolutely a shift in that direction. And we see significant growth in CTA numbers, the number of centers doing it, the number of physicians being trained, the number of scanners being installed. Yeah, so that movement is absolutely underway. And look, to be fair, there will always be a role for stress testing. Mm -hmm. Patients who, for one reason or another, can't have a CTA, you know, there will be a few such patients, you know, people who have very bad kidney disease, for example, and can't tolerate the x-ray dye that's used for CTA. Mm -hmm. Uh, people who have profound, you know, anaphylactic reactions to x-ray dye. Again, we're talking small subsets right. of patients, but they're yeah. non-zeros. That's interesting. I thought that if I, God forbid, had had to have this test done, stress test would have been the number one. That's still what I hear primarily as opposed to CTA scans from friends and contacts, not from people in the industry. So that that's encouraging. I just want to focus on that one more second. Compare, if you would, the experience of undergoing a CTA scan versus the stress test, because the stress test sounds exactly that. Very stressful, very, very time consuming, very difficult. I imagine the CTA scan is just naturally much, a much easier process. Yeah, I think in general, that's a great question. And of course, the patient, what matters most to us as a company is providing things that will help the patient's journey be simpler and provide them more you know, confidence in the outcome of the test, which mm -hmm. is pretty good with stress testing. So for a CTA, you know, a patient comes in often to an outpatient facility or a hospital outpatient department. Uh, they have an IV put in. They're given some medicines to help slow the heart rate down a little bit. This is all completely standard. 
The exam it ta itself takes anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes where you go into the scanner, the inject the dye and take the images. In contrast, and then I'll talk about heart flow piece in a second, but to your question, for a stress test, you know, it's, it is a more laborious endeavor for sure. You know, patients come in, often the imaging is required in a serial fashion. So they have stress done and images taken, for example, with a nuclear tracer, which is by far the most common. And they also have images taken at rest when stress is not being applied. You know, those experiences, the dwell time for the patient in the system can be several hours can take the better part of the day between coming in, getting the injections, getting imaged, getting more injections, getting re-imaged, et cetera. A lot of the times the stress tests don't actually even use a treadmill and actually have someone exercise. More often than not, nowadays they use drug, a given drug intravenously. Interesting. Kind of mimics the effect of exercise. It makes the heartbeat a little faster and it makes the heartbeat harder and increases the oxygen demand. So another reason where the you know, stress testing as currently performed you know, diverges a little bit from what actually the patient's doing in his or her life when they're exercising or, you know, walking uphill or walking upstairs in their home or what have you. Excellent. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you. So let's, yeah, let's talk about the, the AI component, what heart flow, your analysis is really looking at and helping physicians understand about their patients. Sure. So when, when, a, when a CT scan is done, the images are taken and they're x-ray images. So they're just very, very high fidelity x-rays of the heart arteries with contrast in them. And that kind of outlines the chamber, the lumen of the artery is outlined with the contrast. And what HeartFlow does is we take those images. So the, through a secure portal, images, patient images are devoid of any kind of personal health information are sent to HeartFlow. And what we do is, is I would say there are three critical stages. The first is we take those images and we define to a level that's really not possible in current, what physicians have available to them in hospitals. We define the anatomy with incredibly high fidelity. Here's exactly the shape of the lumen. There's a plaque here. That plaque has the following characteristics and it's very, very high fidelity. Uh, what's called in the you know the term of art is segmentation, meaning take the images and and partition them into this is exactly what the lumen looks like. So we have that, and we have trained our ability to do that on hundreds of thousands of scans by this point. So we have just a huge reservoir to make sure that when we see the following X-ray pattern, our ability to say, okay, the lumen shape or the plaque shape at that area is exactly as follows. So that's the first stage. It's very careful. You know, it's kind of like this will be a, a not a totally fair analogy. It's like looking at something under a very high-powered microscope lens in a way that in the out in the field in the hospital is really not possible. So that's the first step. The second step is we then take that and we apply the principles of computational fluid dynamics and say, okay, given this shape and what we know about blood and blood flow to the heart and whatnot, let's calculate everywhere in the coronaries how much flow there is, what the pressure is in this of blood flowing through this tube. And that's all, you know, algorithmically driven, defining those parameters. And it's actually built on, you know, Isaac Newton's original principles of fluid dynamics hmm. and the math that he defined, the math helped it define the math that underlies those calculations. Now, you know, we're dealing with this really complex system of the coronary arteries and they have branches and they have narrowings and all these things, but, you know, armed with sufficient computing power, we're able to make those calculations and calculate pressure and flow. And then we reduce that to something called fractional flow reserve, which is a metric used widely in cardiology, measured invasively 
associated its measure its use associated with much better outcomes than not not using it and we provide that same metric so we're giving back in the third phase i said there were three is we give that information back to the physician in the form of numbers that say okay the fractional flow reserve which is again a derivative from pressure fractional flow reserve at this point just beyond this plaque is the following and that comes back to physicians in ways that they can digest pretty easily right it's on a, a static report which goes into the electronic medical record if that's what they wish goes into the PAC systems uh, and also an interactive model that allows a physician at his or her desktop or a laptop or even on their mobile device to point and click, show the heart arteries, show these numbers, share that with the patient if they want, share that with refer the patient's other physicians in their care pathway and so forth. So those are the three phases. Take the images, define the images really carefully, do the math, give the information back to the doctor. And what is the information tell the doctor? And by that question, I mean, I think earlier you had said early on, and, and I'm paraphrasing you, but I thought you said there may be situations where the artery is narrowed, but does it really, I think you said, does it matter? But are there times when a narrowing is dangerous and is not dangerous? Yeah, that's a great, that's, that's, that's key to this. So yeah. the information that a CT scan alone tells one is the narrow, the percentage narrowing is whatever, 60%. So a normal tube is is has no narrowing, a totally blocked tube would be 100% narrowed, and your tube is 60% narrowed, the patient's tube is 60%. Mm -hmm. So that information alone turns out, and it's been proven over time, is not enough information to decide, is this particular patient best served with an aggressive treatment strategy that takes them to the cath lab and puts a stent in that 60% narrowing? Or if they have multiple narrowing, sends them to the operating room to have you know a bypass operation. The information of percent narrowing is just not sufficient. And what the cardiology field has realized now for 25 years is this fractional flow reserve is an incredibly important determinant. So the fractional flow reserve number, when it's the lower it is, the worse it is. And the lower it is means the compromise to flow is greater. So when the fractional flow reserve information dips low, then there's sort of thresholds defined in the, you know, in the literature, when it dips below 80% or 0.8, those are patients who all else being equal are better served with having a stent or even having a bypass. Conversely, when the FFR, fractional flow reserve, is above that 0.8 threshold, those patients are best served with a more conservative management. Medical therapy, change your lifestyle, quit smoking, lower your cholesterol, those things. But you know what? You don't actually need to go for an invasive procedure because if anything, that would make things worse. So FFR gives this ability to say, to triage patients in a very patient-specific way beyond what the CT scan alone can tell you, which is 60% narrowing. Both patients have one. In one patient, the FFR may be less than 0.8. Okay, that patient's best served with a stent. Conversely, the second patient, their FFR may be above 0.8. Now, it's good to know because, you know, you would be having more harm than good going for a stent. Interesting. Yeah, and you could see that having a lot of impacts, lowering costs with fewer procedures, and those who don't have access to healthcare facilities, getting clearer diagnosis as to what they need to do and don't need to do if they have to drive four hours to have this procedure done. A lot of impacts there. And one idea that was brought forth that was sort of mentioned when we scheduled this call was just helping hospitals sort of understand what they need for uh, in terms of equipment to serve patients. How does heart flow 
what does it require in terms of equipment? What does it require in terms of use? Is it something that can just be sort of easily overlaid? The current CT scan, is it, does it something that requires additional equipment for itself? I'm kind of wondering how it fits into the whole workflow of, of a hospital. Is it an easier plug-in or does it just require a different type of equipment? Yeah, so thank you for that question. It's, uh, it requires no additional equipment. We've spent a lot of time and effort trying to make this seamless with the workflow of physicians. So the images are, all it is, is a mechanism for secure image transfer. It's not a piece of equipment. It's not a thing in the hospital. What's called a virtual machine, it sits in the hospital's environment, computing IT environment, and it allows images to be sent securely. And obviously, in this day and age, there's a huge focus on information security, especially in the healthcare world. And, you know, we pride ourselves on the ability, our ability to work with hospital systems to confirm and reassure that we meet all of the bars for information security that exist in the healthcare system, which are numerous. Images are sent to HeartFlow and all done electronically through the Amazon Web Services cloud. The analysis comes back, just reverse flow through that same information pathway back into the hospital. Mm -hmm. So all electronic, there isn't a thing, there isn't a box, there isn't a capital requirement up front. Uh, there isn't you know, wiring that needs to take place. So it's a very low hurdle to be able to bring this in if you're developing a seat for hospitals, developing a CTA program. I think the other way that this has a, a favorable impact on hospital supply chains, and I'll, I'll broaden that to be a little bit use of facilities is the following, that hospitals, this has to do with the cath lab. And, you know, hospitals obviously use cath labs for doing invasive cardiology procedures and invasive peripheral vascular procedures, electrophysiology across the whole spectrum. And the same facilities for better, you know, for better or worse in general are used for all of those, that suite of procedures. And the primary effect of using heart flow, the primary effect is that the number of patients who come in for an invasive coronary angiogram and end up having that be negative, negative in the sense that the patient is told, great news, you know, the CT scan maybe showed some blockages or the stress test suggested there were some blockages, but you know what? Those blockages aren't important. And maybe we measured FFR invasively with a wire. So in the cath lab, we had to give you potent blood thinners and stick a wire down your coronaries to make the measurements. But at the end of all that, you don't need a stent. That sequence in the U.S. and around the world is over 50%, hmm. often as high as 60 plus percent of patients who come in in the morning, they're dropped off at the hospital thinking, I may come out of the hospital with a stent. They come out with a pat on the back and good news that their coronaries don't require a stent, but to get that information has required them to go to this very intensive area of the hospital, much like an operating room, have this procedure done, very expensive. And what the primary function of heart flow and the FFR component is to remove those patients from the cath lab because all of that information is now available with a 15-minute test done as an outpatient hmm. uh, non-invasively. Now, you might say, well, surely, why is that a good thing for hospitals? I mean, your original question was about hospital supply chains. And, and the fact of the matter is that the, using these high-intensity areas of the hospital for purely a diagnostic test, invasive test, is not something the cardiovascular administrators, and I'm generalizing now, but it's fair, it's not something the cardiovascular administrators see much value in. You know, it's a very expensive setting of care to do a diagnostic test. 
Also, of course, the human patient side of it is potent. If you can avoid doing an invasive procedure, which has risks to the patient, real risks, why wouldn't you want to do that? So I do think you, you asked about supply chain and equipment. I think a core part of that question is use of the of the invasive cardiology suite, if you will, and using it for people who really need to be there to get things fixed rather than just to figure out what might be wrong with them. Great. And just a final question. Looking forward as as if we continue to move away from stress tests into, into CT as, as a primary method of diagnosis, what are the, the sort of headwinds that are that are keeping that from happening? What are the tailwinds that are going to help that happen? And where do things unfold? How do things unfold over the next uh, four to five years? Yeah, so it's already underway. It's a really interesting question in the in the cardiology field is, you know, the guidelines changed late last fall. And there's already, you know, one senses this sea change underway. But the key steps uh, are several. One is being sure that there's patient access to CT scanners that are capable of doing coronary CT angiography. So they have to have the right imaging system, the right software packages to enable that imaging. It's different than getting a CT of the head or musculoskeletal or the lungs or whatever. So that's one. The second is making sure there are technologists, radiology technologists, who are capable of getting doing CTA, and that's a specific subset that requires additional training. And then the third is making sure there are physicians, be they cardiologists or radiologists, who are trained to interpret CTA. That's something which is front and center, certainly in both radiology and cardiology now, both for fellowship training programs. How do we train, make sure all cardiology fellows come out knowing how to read a CTA, the, the way they come out today, knowing how to read an echo, most of them how to do a nuclear test. If the window on those or the need for those is waning, stress testing world, let's make sure all fellows know how to do CTA. So that's, that's one. And the second is mid, even mid-career cardiologists and radiologists are you know acquiring this as a competency, as a way to provide better service to the people sending the patients going and learning how to interpret coronary CTA. So those are the big things. It's the equipment, it's the technologists, and then it's the it's the physicians to interpret. All of those are, you know, there's a lot of effort underway to help bolster all three of those. But the more those are in place over time, the more quickly this transition, which is an inevitable transition, the more quickly it'll happen. Excellent. All right. Well, great conversation, Kemmel. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate it. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Campbell Rogers. Now, as promised, here's my interview with Dr. Jim Min, the founder and CEO of Clearly. Well, Jim Min, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's such a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So when we had you on last time, Clearly was just uh, just sort of started out. We talked about your path to uh, starting companies. This was your second and your plans with Clearly. And clearly your plans are, are going well, no pun intended that you've recently raised a Series C round of $223 million. I'm having even trouble even saying it. I want to follow up and talk about the fundraising process, but uh, I think we should give folks an overview of clearly, again, what are you? Uh, what is your technology capable of doing and uh, what is your business model going after? Yeah, it's a great question. So we're a digital healthcare company that has created a care pathway to try to identify patients early or across the continuum of uh, presentation of heart disease, um, and really try to educate all of the stakeholders to get the patients on the right treatment and to be able to quantitatively track heart disease over time. In a very simple one-sentence sort of purpose, 
what clearly does is we measure heart disease. And I know that sounds strange, Tom, because doesn't everybody in cardiology measure heart disease, but we actually haven't, right? For the last hundred years, we've relied on risk factors of disease, such as diabetes and hypertension and high cholesterol. We've relied on downstream uh, consequences or sequelae of heart disease, such as narrowings in the arteries or a reduced blood supply to the heart muscle, but we've never actually measured the heart disease itself, which is the atherosclerosis or the plaque that builds up within the walls of the artery. So our company's thesis is that heart doctors should measure heart disease, and we want to provide best-in-class tools to really be able to support those physicians and patients to empower them with knowledge, get the folks on the right treatment, and really try to make a dent into the number one public health epidemic, which is heart attacks and fatal heart attacks. So that's sort of what we offer. We're a software as a service company. We're AI enabled, fully software driven. Um, we take non-invasive coronary CT scans, very safe, very low radiation dose, very precise. And then we layer our technology on top of that to really extract the most important phenotypic markers of heart disease in a manner that a human doesn't, isn't able to do. So that's sort of what we do. Where we're trying to deploy this is really across the continuum of care. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in, in cardiology, historically, we've been very, very symptom driven, right? So we won't evaluate somebody with advanced imaging unless you present with sort of end stage chest pain or shortness of breath. And, and we definitely service that population in patients undergoing symptomatic clinically indicated coronary CT angiography. That tends to be in a vertical of health systems, IDNs, hospitals, and things like that. And then in the second of two verticals that we're really pursuing is really founded on the statistic that like more than 50% of people who will die of a heart attack will never have a symptom. So if we only wait wow. for symptoms, we're never going to make a dent into this uh, epidemic. And so what we found is that um, in a value-based healthcare delivery model, we can really provide a best-in-class early diagnosis and really support the doctors to get to early treatment and lifestyle interventions in a preventive fashion rather than in a reactive fashion, sort of, you know, promoting health care rather than sick care. And so we target that commercial market vertical as well that includes a whole array of potential client partners, including, you know, Medicare Advantage, accountable care organizations, employers, unions, and, and such. So, so we're really sort of tackling two different directions, one for the one that is typically evaluated by cardiologists historically, and one that we've just ignored, and uh, we need to really do a better job. So how are you getting your your technology out there? I'm looking at your your website, and you're, you're clearly, you've got tabs for patients, providers, uh, or individuals, providers, employers, and payers. So you're making your service available to all the major demographics within the healthcare system. How does each sort of interact with Clearly's offering? Let's start with individuals, with people. What are you offering to, to individuals directly? Yeah, individuals like we, so we do support a smaller vertical right now that goes after individual providers. So doctors, whether they're cardiologists or whether they're primary care physicians. But what we found was in a direct payment model that there's a high amount of enthusiasm amongst patients to really understand what's going on in their heart because mm. the majority of heart disease is silent. It's not symptomatic. And so that, that sort of is how we touch individuals is through their provider. We try very hard to enhance the physician-patient relationship rather than to disintermediate it. And so some have suggested, hey, why don't you just go direct to consumer and just let patients know about this? We don't want to do that. We want to be solidly in the standard of the way healthcare is delivered and really strengthen physician-patient relationships. But we have developed 
partnerships with um, system-wide, countrywide virtual cardiologists that can really provide best-in-class consultative services and then really uh, recommend our analyses for anybody who, who is medically eligible. So that's sort of how we've touched the individuals is through their providers. Health systems is sort of the typical med tech approach, right, where we go to, um, we find the clinical champions who really believe and say, this is technology we have to have. And then we work with the executives and supply chain and whatnot. And then we come sort of in the middle where the administrators and the clinicians come together. I think that's a sort of a, a typical approach for most med tech companies. And then where we think we really provide great value is in preventive services, really trying to help support doctors and patients using our technology to identify the disease at its earliest stage. I'll give you um, sort of a summary of a number of different studies that whenever you look at what is the most, the strongest predictor of who will be a rapid progressor of disease or who will have an event, it's always baseline amount of disease, that the more disease you have, the faster it, it progresses hmm. and the higher the events. So what that means is we got to treat this thing before the horse gets out of the barn, not after it's too late. And when you can control the disease process is at its earliest state. And that's a prevention play, not a symptomatic reactionary play. And so there, what we have done is really shown like with a, a number of pieces of evidence that we've published is that we can bend the cost curve downwards while improving care um, by doing, by shifting away from a traditional end stage sort of treatment to an early stage uh, treatment and really supporting doctors to do that and do very high-end prevention in a very quantitative and personalized fashion. How early do you recommend uh, getting an I'm a 53-year-old male? I mean, am I someone who should have been tested already, should be tested, and how would I go about doing that? So for you, uh, you could go to your provider, and mm. your provider could order a not only a non-invasive CT scan, but also a clearly analysis on, on top of that. And then, you know, we, we are just forging into this territory and all of the technology that uh, has been developed that clearly was developed on about 17 years worth of clinical trial evidence. And we are committed. That's in our DNA. We are evidence-based. We will continue doing that. In fact, we'll probably allocate about 25 to 30 percent of this financing round to evidence development mm. in the form of large-scale randomized control trials. It's time. If you think about like the way the most successful preventive care paradigms in medicine, they're all in cancer mortality prevention, whether it's uh, mammography or colonoscopy or low-dose high-resolution lung CT scans for lung cancer prevention. Like We use advanced imaging with direct visualization of disease to prevent the most common cause of cancer, but we don't do that for the most common cause of death, which is heart disease. And so that's sort of what we're shifting towards. A number of our trials will be really aimed at trying to define the optimal population um, that should undergo this early, early analysis so that their doctors and the patients can really find actionable information to, to influence outcomes. At present, what we have is several multi-center trial data to really show that this is, in fact, not only feasible, but successful, and at both the clinical value proposition, but also at the economic value proposition where it can reduce the total cost of care. And what exactly are you selling to the, the hospital or the doctor's office? Is it, is it the software that's able to, to read the CT data in the most effective way, employing your ability to, to see the various types of plaque, or is it is it a device itself? What do your customers get? Yep, we're a truly software as a service uh, company, and so no hardware, all virtual integrations. We can integrate in any hospital, like give me a hospital in Sydney, Australia, or Hong Kong, and just an IP address, and we can launch that hospital in about 15 minutes or so. Wow. After that, 
occurs, we can automatically ingest CT scans into our cloud where a series of machine learned algorithms process in parallel. And in about 45 minutes to an hour, you get the results back down to the stakeholders. And that means every stakeholder. So what we have done is developed um, numerous software platforms as well as enduring materials that touch everybody across the care continuum. That includes the imager or the radiologist. It includes the general cardiologist who doesn't know imaging. It includes the preventive cardiologist, the interventional cardiologist, researchers, patients. We built the, the platform in collaboration with primary care. And we're of the strong belief that there's not enough cardiologists in this world to do the kinds of early diagnosis and treatment that are needed, that has to be pushed up to the quarterback where the quarterback is truly the primary care physician, not the, the cardiologist. And so really creating translational tools that allow you to take the advanced imaging science and all of the high-end artificial intelligence, converting that into very simple to understand actionable clinical insights that really can help support doctors know what the next step for treatment or evaluation should be. Um, so really trying to hit everybody who touches that patient, the patient, primary care, cardiologist, and so on. So really across the continuum. But the cardiologist would be the customer, correct? The primary care would be the referring physician. In different models, like in the traditional sort of symptomatic evaluation of chest pain and shortness of breath, like that tends to be ordered by the cardiologist. And then in really sort of the more preventive verticals, that tends to be ordered by the primary care physician. Mm -hmm. But are they the ones who are, are buying in your service or are they merely referring them to someone who is bought in your service? They're the primary customer. Okay, interesting. So how has, however your efforts, I'm, I'm looking right now at, uh, I'm in the Boston area, looking for uh, Find Clearly near you. And I see one provider in Chestnut Hill, Mass., which is about 37 miles from my house, according to your website, 37.7 miles. So very precise. Is this just a beachhead, just having one customer, and you may have more who aren't up on the website yet? Is that sort of what you need to service an area, or is your intention to have a lot more of these pins on your map providing yeah. clearly to customers? Yeah, those pins on our map are what we call hubs. They're sort of best-in-class imaging centers that provide high-end coronary CT angiography okay. services, they are clearly enabled. And we are we have partnerships um, with uh, nationwide imaging centers, companies that have, you know, multiple footprints across many geographies. Uh, one such partnership is one with Simon Med. So they they have about 180 installations across the country. And we're in negotiations with a number of other different large imaging center footprint companies to really try to blanket the um, the country so that you're never particularly far away from a clearly enabled facility. In truth, like there's other ways that we can, if you just got a CT scan and you were interested to get the clearly analysis, we can certainly work with patients to get that scan analyzed. But it's much easier if everything is just automated. So that's why we're really deploying all of those hubs or those CT centers. Going back to the, the clinical trials you, you hope to run to, to collect the evidence you need, uh, how long do you anticipate those will take? I imagine it'll be a number of years before you get the, the data you need. Yeah, I mean, we've already started. Like, uh, So probably we have a dozen multi-center clinical trials already ongoing in the company that we've started from years ago. As an example, there's one that we have, which is a large global observational registry to really look at the effects of atherosclerosis and vascular morphology on uh, patient outcomes. 
Um, so for that one, we envisioned it as enrolling up to 200,000 patients uh, with at least four-year follow-up. We're about 12,000 patients enrolled at this point in time. And so we'll start to release a lot of that data. What's interesting about that data is that with exquisite prediction, you can figure out exactly who's sick, when they're going to have their event, and so really provides a lot of insights into a patient's future outcomes. And then for we have a number of other multicenter trials, which were more diagnostic validation studies, comparing ourselves against every sing- single conceivable gold standard, which is mostly intracoronary imaging, right? So mm-hmm. um, invasive angiogram, intravascular ultrasound, optical clearance tomography, near-field infrared spectroscopy, and fractional flow reserve. So those are all, like a few of them have been completed. The other few are, are are ongoing and near completion. And then to what you sort of asked about was, well, do these trials, if they're outcomes trials, they typically take a long time. We've designed three large randomized trials like that will prospectively start next year, uh, probably Q1. And that one of those will be a 12-month, a 24-month, and a 36-month outcome. So we'll we'll get sort of interim readouts on an annual basis. The other two trials will likely be more event-driven trials, and so we'll go as long as the events uh, take to occur. That probably will be on the order of uh, five years or so before uh, full study completion, unless we find overwhelming benefit in the clearly enabled pathway, in which case it may be shorter. But we're in the midst of the final designs on these trials, and um, we will probably start those in Q1 of next year. Excellent. So uh, I'm sorry, I forget what percentage of, of the $223 million you raised was going to go toward the trials. I don't know if you gave me an exact percentage, but tell us what the other, uh, how the other money will be committed. What are the plans for the fund? Yeah, so I think that the it's about 25 to 30% of the capital will be deployed towards evidence generation. The majority of it will be to commercial scale. We've experienced just uh, exponential uh, commercial growth in the last year. And so we'll continue that and feed those verticals, both in the traditional symptomatic population, as well as in risk-bearing preventive models. We have a product roadmap that extends out many, many years. So we'll continue product innovation. I think the next sort of suite of products that will come out from Clearly will be the most interesting ones and have never never been present in the field of cardiology before. And so without trying to divulge too much, I just think that there's going to be a new era of precision heart care where we can really personalize cardiology using the clearly analyses. So that will be an exciting time as well. And then, as you know, like uh, market access and reimbursement efforts are going to be, they're hard and they take a long time and a lot of resources. So we'll, we'll put that into play as well. And a couple of other things that we'll do is really try to support the societies with advocacy efforts to really try to make people aware of the technology and really um, to get fair reimbursement to physicians for performing this high-end um, advanced imaging procedure. And then finally, like we've just started to think about international expansion too. So likely at least a portion of those proceeds will be in really trying to think through where we should go next besides just the U.S. We think that this technology should be available globally, but we'll have to tackle markets one one market at a time. What kind of inroads have you made with, with payers so far? We've made some. Like we applied to the American Medical Association for a family of CPT codes or current procedure diagnostic technology diagnostic codes. We got that a family of codes issued for our technology. They became live uh, this year. And so we just started to um, to submit claims. We've spent the last two years really doing a lot of evidence development and put together a very nice clinical dossier to start having those payer coverage conversations. And so that will be 
an area of maniacal focus for us, really, <laughs> to have those positive payer conversations to really explain both the, the clinical value proposition as well as sort of demonstrate how it can reduce the total cost of care. I'm having a hard time sort of finding the right bucket to put your company. It almost sounds like you're you're the first company to come up with an endoscope and, and pushing colonoscopy a, as a treatment. You sort of have, and, and it's, it's a blunt example, but I'm trying to understand what your model is for for growing this company in, in the future. Is it is it just laser focus on this service for this diagnostic, or you alluded to earlier, there might be some other applications as well? What does this company look like in a couple of years? Yeah, it's a great question. Like, I think based on what we've seen over the course of the last year since we put together the commercial team, I think you're going to see rapid commercial growth, both in fee-for-service as well as value-based healthcare environments. If you take a step back and say, okay, let's cut out all this noise and let's ask ourselves, what's the biggest thing that we could do to really make a positive impact in this world? And I think it's universal worldwide screening for heart disease. Mm-hmm. We will never find these people because they are asymptomatic before they die. And everybody knows somebody like this, Tom, right? Somebody went out for a run and never came back or somebody went to sleep and never woke up. And yep. unfortunately and tragically, that is the typical presentation of a heart attack is that I feel fine one day and I'm dead the next day. How are you going to find that person if you're waiting for them to have chest pain when they never actually experienced chest pain? So that would that is um, sort of the design of some of those randomized trials to really fulfill sort of level one evidence to say, yep, you know what? We have a non-invasive tool that provides exquisite, accurate, and precise whole heart imaging of disease quantitatively. And then two, we've got this huge toolbox of medications and lifestyle interventions that we didn't have four or five years ago that we can use to really reduce somebody's risk of experiencing a heart attack. And then I think the third was probably the most important, which is we didn't understand the vascular biology of coronary heart disease until we started doing these large outcomes trials of 25,000 people and, and whatnot. But armed with the vascular biology knowledge, the heavy toolbox of therapies, and a safe and reproducible, accurate, non-invasive tool that clearly has developed. I think it's time to start at least having the discussion about, are we ready for universal screening? And I think the readiness of universal screening will be dependent on the outcomes of large-scale randomized control trials for which our company is committed to do. Fantastic. And final question, just looking at your uh, your syndicate, got, I think, every investment bank and, and brokerage firm I've, I can name, all the big ones anyway. Do you, your next fund, do you see the, your next financing? Do you see it coming from the public markets? I think it's too early to say. Like, yeah. I, I think we've got a lot of work ahead of us. I mean, we were extremely blessed to be introduced and have the opportunity to interact with some very visionary investors and sort of long game investors. The two leads, as you know, were T. Rowe Price and Fidelity Investments. And they were joined by just a fantastic syndicate that include like Sands Capital, Piper Sandler, Mirai. We had some technology-enabled funds, such as Peter Thiel's fund and Briar Capital, as well as some strategics, including Novartis Ventures, as well as Pura Vita. So, you know, combined with our current investor base, like we couldn't be happier with the team that we we joined. And now it's just time to put the nose to the grindstone and get, get back to work because, you know, somebody dies of cardiovascular disease every 1.7 seconds. This is a, not only an urgency, it's just an emergency. So uh, fulfilling that mission is going to be it's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of work, but it's it's time to do it. And you know, I'm just blessed to have the capital to be able to actually push this forward. Fantastic. Well, this is a, a very exciting story and an important one. And I appreciate your uh, sharing it on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. 
All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast. Once again, go to devicetalks.com for more information about Device Talks West, which is happening on October 19th and 20th in Santa Clara. And of course, our upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays. Please do subscribe to this podcast. If you subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network, you'll get the Device Talks weekly podcast, the Striker Talk podcast, the Intuitive Talks podcast, and maybe some more podcasts in the near future. So find the Device Talks podcast network on any major podcast application. Subscribe to that and you won't miss a future episode. Also, please share these podcast episodes on social media. And when you do or when you don't, whatever, either way, connect with me on social media. I am on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. Or you can find me on Twitter at MedTechTom. That's it. Thanks again for joining us. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you.